Well, if you've not been with us the last two weeks, we're halfway through our series, Cultivate, where we've been looking at how we grow in our life with God or spiritual growth. The first week, we looked at the fruit we're cultivating, Christ-likeness to the core of our being. We saw that this is the goal of spiritual growth until Christ is formed in you and that the Holy Spirit is given to help us in this process. Last week, we looked at the growth process itself and noted three observations. One, it's a gradual process. Two, we do it with God. And three, it involves all of life. It's a slow grow. It takes time. Just as an oak tree doesn't produce its first acorn until 20 or 30 years old, often the most important growth in our lives is hidden deep beneath the surface. And like the image Jesus gave us of the vine and the branches when he claimed, apart from me, you can do nothing, we cannot do this without him. But with him, our spiritual growth will affect every aspect of our lives, including the physical, emotional, cognitive, behavioral, and relational Each week, we've emphasized that spiritual growth is a partnership with God. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, continue to work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you. How's that for a paradox? Continue to work, for it is God who works. As in gardening, there are elements within our control, and there are elements outside of our control. We cannot make growth happen. We can only create the conditions in which growth can occur. The Bible is very clear that growth is not solely our responsibility. But the Bible is also clear that the opposite is also true. Growth is not solely God's responsibility. We must do our part. That's why we find so many instructions and admonitions about how we are to live as followers of Jesus. Imagine two people who each plant a garden right next to each other such that their gardens exist in the same climate, receive the same amount of sunlight, and have the same soil. The one difference between them is the activity of the gardener. One gardener comes out every day, watering, tending, weeding, and observing what is happening so she knows how best to care for what is growing. The other gardener doesn't do anything. She figures it'll rain in a few days anyway. She's preoccupied with other things, and she doesn't think she needs to. Which garden do you think will produce more fruit? See, while it is very much the case, and we have appropriately emphasized that growth is not solely up to us, it is also important we do our part. We must be receptive, attentive, yes, even take action to join God in the work he is doing in our lives. That's what we're looking at this week, nourishing elements of growth or what our part is in this process. And that is precisely the role of the spiritual disciplines. If you've spent any time in the church and if you've spent any time in this church, you've probably heard us talk about things like reading our Bibles or praying or worshiping regularly in church. Those are some examples of spiritual disciplines, but those are just three examples of a broader group of practices or activities or habits, whatever word you want to use, that we can engage in to help us grow in our faith. We'll mention a few other practices in a moment, but for now, I want us to think generally about the concept of what these practices or habits are. The spiritual disciplines are activities we do 
to put ourselves in a position for God to work in us. Richard Foster, who wrote a classic on this subject, says, by themselves, they can't do anything. They can only get us to the place where something can be done. He means God has to do the work in us, but these activities help us make ourselves available to God. In fact, he has a unique phrase to describe the spiritual disciplines. He says they are a disciplined grace. How's that for an oxymoron? Disciplined because it's something we do. Grace because it's something we can't do. God does the work in us, but we must be willing. Spiritual disciplines are an intentional way of making ourselves available to God for that work. Imagine a sailboat. You can't control when the wind blows through, but you can put up your sail so that when the wind does blow, it'll carry the boat. Similarly, the best spade or garden tool in the world won't guarantee a good crop, but a good garden tool will make it more likely that growth will be unobstructed. As one writer says, the spiritual disciplines are just like good garden tools. They can remove stones or roots, aerate the soil, weed and water the garden, and in this way, keep the soil of our love free from obstruction. So spiritual discipline is anything we do to make ourselves available to God, to make us more like Jesus. Question. How do we know what we can do to make us more like Jesus? Well, a good place to start is to look at Jesus' life and see what he did, how he arranged his life, what patterns and habits he established. And then we can look at what he told his followers to do, what he taught about, and what he encouraged them to keep doing after he left. When we look at Jesus' life and the lives of his earliest friends and followers, we see many activities. And for the sake of time, I'm just listing a few here, not explaining where we find them in the Bible. But any of the resources I've recommended on our book list will do that if you're curious about where those are. Jesus prays to God regularly. He recites scripture he has memorized, or he alludes to it in conversations he has with others. In the Sermon on the Mount, when he teaches us, he says, when you pray, when you fast, when you give to the poor, assuming we will do these things. He sometimes went off by himself for extended periods of time. He had a pattern of worshiping in the synagogue and celebrating the Jewish feasts. The early church then, following admonitions in Paul's letters, confessed to one another, submitted to one another, served one another, and on and on. There is not one complete list of spiritual disciplines, and in fact, different theologians organize them in different ways. But all of the disciplines are an intention to follow the pattern of Jesus and the historic Christian Orthodox Church in doing what Jesus did so we can become more like him. And that is another way we can define the spiritual disciplines. Being with Jesus in order to learn from him how to be like him. Being with Jesus in order to learn from him how to be like him. Every time we engage in these practices, that's our goal. Or as Dallas Willard defines it, as Jesus' disciple, I'm learning from him how to live my life as he would live it if he were I. And we can learn from him how to be like him at any time. But if this is indeed our deepest desire, why wouldn't we be more intentional about it? 
And here I want to spend a few moments thinking about how we build consistency into our lives so that we are sure what matters most to us is reflected in how we live. The field of neuroscience has grown remarkably in the last 30 years, and because of that, we are learning a lot about how our brains are wired. One interesting phenomena in brain science, as it relates to the topic of spiritual growth, is automation, or habituation, the process of forming habits. Now, clearly, I am no expert in neuroscience, but as best I understand it, here's what's pertinent to our topic of discussion. And here I'm drawing on the work of Kurt Thompson, who's a psychiatrist working in the field of interpersonal neurobiology, as well as James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. Whenever we're faced with new information, such as learning a new language or a musical instrument, we have to consciously think about what we're doing. It takes a fair bit of cognitive load. Just think back to that first week on your new job or when you first learned how to drive. As we learn the skill, our brains store that information so we can draw on it in the future because our brains are constantly trying to reduce that cognitive load so precious mental capacity can be freed up and allocated for other tasks. The neural connections required for that particular task or activity are formed much like a sled creating a fresh path in the snow, the more those actions are repeated, the easier and smoother it is to do that activity without really thinking about it. It has become second nature. This is what's known as Hebb's Law, named after neuropsychologist Donald Hebb in 1949, neurons that fire together, wire together. And so one could define habits, as James Clear does, as mental shortcuts learned from experience to free up our ability to think consciously. Now, this efficient system can work both for us and against us, depending on what has become automated. If, for example, every time we pull up to a red light, we get angry that we have to wait and we've missed the light and our blood pressure rises, we become more and more stressed about how late we will be for our next appointment. Eventually, if we keep doing this, as soon as that light turns red, we're already starting to get worked up. Alternatively, if we pull up to the red light and, as one woman in our congregation has chosen to do, use that time instead to pray for someone who we, she knows is sick and is in need of God's comfort, we will have a different experience. We will not get so angry. We will show up at our next appointment in a very different frame of mind. While the time spent at the stoplight was the same, what happened in those seconds was vastly different. And this is the amazing thing about habits. They can be changed. Now, because of Hebb's principle and the brain's affinity towards automating processes, it is difficult. It takes time and attention, but it can be done. New neural pathways can be created in the brain. As we saw last week from the plateau of latent potential and the valley of disappointment, we have to stick with it long enough for it to become second nature. But once we do, it will actually take more energy not to do it than it takes to do it. Now, what does all this mean for us trying to grow spiritually? It means wanting to grow isn't quite enough. Willpower alone won't cut it. As James Clear writes in his book, habits eat willpower for breakfast. 
In fact, he observes, our outcomes are a lagging measure of our habits. Or, put more positively, every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. So if you and I want to become the kind of person whose life is marked by the fruit of God's spirit in us, love, joy, peace, patience, etc., we need to arrange our lives around some practices that will help us form into that kind of person. Remember, it's not the practice that produces the fruit. It's God's spirit that produces the fruit. But the fruit certainly can't grow if we don't give it opportunity to. The disciplines are any activity we can do to make ourselves available for God to make us more in the likeness of Christ. I'll say more about the variety of practices next week when we talk about crop threats because that's one of the dangers in spiritual growth is having a one-size-fits-all mentality. But for now, let me encourage you, if you feel drawn to a particular practice, and some of you have been telling me over the last six months, I really want to experiment with dot, dot, dot. Now is your time. You can use the recommended book list in the lobby to learn more. Each of those books has a chapter on a, on a certain discipline. There's an entire books on each one of those disciplines if you want more resources. But just bite-size, Adele Calhoun's Spiritual Disciplines Handbook has a very concise three-page summary of the practices. And you can photocopy after our service here. Go in the office, find a welcome team member with a key. Just photocopy three pages of a practice if you're curious. And you can be on your way. Maybe your growth group for the fall is going to want to choose to study one of these topics. God has many tools at his disposal to help prepare the soil of our hearts. I want to encourage you to pursue whatever appeals to you right now. But if there's not one practice that stands out to you or you don't know where to begin, I want to encourage you then to start with meditating on scripture. Because this practice is so central for everyone's growth. It's the main nutrient for all we need. We'll spend the remainder of our time looking at it and how to incorporate it in our lives. Now, when I say meditating on scripture, I'm combining what are generally seen as two different activities and putting them together in one experience. Reading the Bible and prayer. Or we could call it scripture prayer. Prayer scripture. What I mean by putting these to together is something different than just reading the Bible like any other book. It's listening to the God behind the Bible as he speaks to us. It's the difference between reading with our eyes and reading with our ears. It's the difference between reading for information and reading for transformation. Here's the idea. What we fill our minds with is powerful. For any fans of cognitive therapy out there, this is basic psychology, right? This is also basic Bible. What we fill our minds with will affect what we think, how we feel, and therefore how we act. Philippians 4.8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I won't belabor the point since this, is, since this has come up throughout our series. Psalm 1, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. That's the Bible. They are like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Colossians 3, since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. 
Ephesians 4, you were taught to put off your old self and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self. One of the realities of our world is that we have so much gunk going on in us all the time. And I do believe gunk is the correct theological term. Picture the plaque and tartar your hygienist scrapes off your teeth when you've missed a couple of your six-month checkups. Or that bacteria that is in all of our kitchens, even though we cannot see it. That gunk is just not just on our teeth or in our kitchens. It's also in our minds. And it includes false narratives about ourselves and about who God is. Negative self-talk. Distractions of all kinds of what's really important in life. Previous wounds. Sorrows. Regret, not to mention all the noise constantly bombarding us to do more and be more and have more. So much gunk clutters our minds. And the mind is sticky. It picks this stuff up like a dark suit picks up lint. We need regularly to cleanse our minds of this gunk. And to do that, we need to fix our minds on what is true and right. And we do that by focusing on God's truths in the Bible. Yes, God speaks to us in creation and in community as well. But one of his primary ways of speaking to us is through the Bible. That's why the Bible is called God's word. Just as every plant needs water, sunlight, and nourishment to grow, so too do we need the Holy Spirit, the community of God, and nourishment, what we're feeding ourselves to grow. But we don't just hear what God is saying to us from the Bible. We think about it. We turn it over in our minds. We ask him to show us what it means. We talk with him about how this affects our meeting at work today or interacting with a neighbor. And we ask him the questions we still have about the passage. Are there any gardeners out there who are fans of this product? Raise your hand, be bold. Last service, there were only one or two. Okay, we are either really bad gardeners, those of us, or not everyone is being honest. I love this advertisement, grow bigger, more beautiful plants. Who doesn't want that, right? The directions are add miracle grow plant food to the watering can, fill the water, and feed while watering. So the idea is together the food and the water nourishes. That's how I want us to think about prayer and scripture. Not two separate things, feed while watering, scripture, prayer, prayer, scripture, all is one. Now, I think those of us here, most of us would agree that engaging with the Bible is a good thing, but we're often at a loss as to how to do that. So as we close today, I want to describe five different people who are all at different life stages who are engaging with the Bible differently. Hopefully, by hearing a variety of ways to do this, it will inspire you for how this can look in your own life, okay? One mom I know with two children aged four and six years old reads the Bible regularly even though she has a full-time job. Here's how. Every night, she puts her younger child to bed. Then with her six-year-old son, she sits on the couch and reads with him for a half hour. She said, I wanted to teach him the value of reading. So she reads, or he reads his picture books, and she reads the Bible. And he keeps asking her, Mom, why aren't you done with that book? Why aren't you done? <laughs> He's flying through picture books, and she's not done with the Bible. She told me, I love it. I actually miss it now when I travel. I find I think about it 
think about what I've read at other times. I feel, this is what she said, I feel like it keeps me grounded as to what's important in life, and that is hard to come by in my circles. How beautiful is that? A businessman of Fortune 500 company does it very differently. He travels nearly every week in different time zones, so it's really difficult to do at three in the morning. Instead, his rhythm is to set aside four hours every Saturday, he rarely travels on Saturday, and study large passages of the Bible. He prays and even turns his mind to spiritual truths during the work week, but setting aside that time on the weekends has been bearing fruit in his life. It has lifted the guilt of not finding a daily time with his schedule now. Instead, he is able to immerse himself in the Bible and pray in meaningful, undistracted ways. A mom with a newborn, of which we have many here, is going to live this out quite differently, is she not? Instead of a four-hour study session on a Saturday, she has found bite-sized little phrases from the Bible to turn over and over in her mind several times a night as she rocks and nurses her child. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God is my rock and refuge, I will never be shaken. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. She has a calendar with these verses on them and focuses on a different one each day. She estimates she turns those phrases over in her mind five to ten minutes, three to four times a night. Lest we think this is just for adults, a teenage boy got inspired after a youth group retreat to read his Bible more regularly. He downloaded the free Bible app onto his phone and every morning on the school bus reads it. No one around him even knows they're doing it. They're all on their phones playing video games. Instead of killing his brain cells, he's filling his mind with truths he can remember throughout the day as he interacts with people who do not always share his values. And lastly, one person I know signs up every year for a weekly Bible study because she knows she needs the accountability in order to engage with the Bible meaningfully. She intentionally signs up for the peer pressure being in such a group entails. The questions of, did you do your homework? Because she knows she needs that support right now if she's going to do it. She simply will not do it on her own. She said, once I gave up feeling guilty about the fact that I need the external accountability, I've gotten so much more out of it. We each have to figure out how it will work in our lives. So if you're at a loss as to where to start or you need a bit of a jump start, I want you to take out your program. There's an insert, a second insert inside there behind the VBS one. It's a purple cover. It's got some instructions and then some verses from Psalm 103 on it. You can begin meditating on one day this week. There are, I don't know, it'll take you five, ten minutes. There are four additional passages suggested there, too, if you want to try it Monday to Friday. If you're looking for something more, I want to encourage you to read little sections, just paragraphs, of the Gospel of John located in the front of the New Testament. Or if you want to try something for 30 days, there's a black book on, our, uh, on the table in the lobby that you're welcome to take. It's called 30 Days, A Practical Introduction to Reading the Bible. It's published by the same people who do Alpha and could be a helpful tool for building that habit in your life. 
You could also download one of our Bible reading plans on our website. I know somebody has told me that's been really helpful. It's under resources, daily Bible reading plans. However you decide to do it, let me encourage us all to seek some way to fill our mind with the truth of God's word. Because that's going to look different for each one of us, as we close today, I want us to give us an opportunity right now. We don't do this very often, but I'm, I'm going to ask us to have a few moments of silence to clean out the gunk, to ask God to show us how to make his word more a part of our lives regularly. What habits or practices might he be inviting us into for this next season of our lives so that the life of Christ might be cultivated in us?